You know, a lot of times we want to care about who people... Okay, so here's, here's a couple of them. You see here, this, um, this is the, those are the walls. Uh, of course, it's eroded down some. And you can see they had elaborate two, three-story houses. We can go on to the next one. We're just going to look at this very quickly. See, that, this is all pretty large, multiple rooms. You know, a lot of ancient Israelites would live in one room. But here, they had multiple rooms put together. Okay, go on. Okay, so, so still the same idea. You can see all the houses butted up together there. And the next one? Okay, you can see the center streets and everything. It's a large town. The next one, I think, should be the synagogue. Okay, so you can see those huge stone pillars in the synagogue. Uh, see the benches on the side? They have the men sit on one side and the women sit on the other side. Um, it's just extravagant. Look at that. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. Is it? So this is a place, a nobleman from Capernaum. That means it's somebody who's connected to Herod's court. It's somebody who is... Uh, influential, who is probably involved in this large Jewish synagogue. He's somebody with some importance. So he comes, and as we see then, he comes because his son is sick. It says, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he comes 20 some odd miles and tries to get to Jesus because his son is dying. His son is a death store. And Jesus, when he sees this important nobleman coming up to him, and he could tell he was an important nobleman from his clothes and everything else, he probably had servants with him. Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now that's not the way that you talk to somebody who's important. But Jesus gets straight to the heart of things. He comes and he sees this man has come in a last-ditch effort to save his son. But Jesus knows his heart and says, there's no faith there. He said, you won't have faith until you see something. It's a, a constant adage of our society. Seeing is believing. You know, if you just show yourself, God, if you just prove yourself to me, if you can turn a little water into wine, if you can multiply some fish and some loaves, then I would believe. How many people have you heard um, that you talk to them and you say, well, what would make you change your mind about God? You say, well, if God appeared to me, you just uh, told me, here I am. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that somebody that refuses to accept God wouldn't accept God if he showed up. Why can I say that? I say because Jesus, um, when telling the story of the rich man Lazarus, the rich man said, let me send somebody, do something, send somebody to my brothers and warn them that they won't enter into this terrible place. And Abraham, of course, Jesus telling the story as the character of Abraham, as the, it quotes Abraham as saying, even if one should rise from the dead, they will not repent. They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. If they won't listen to what God has said, they won't listen to any signs. And how do we know that? Well, because somebody just a few chapters later, did rise from the dead. And the people didn't repent. You, know, you can talk yourself out of anything. You have seen before in your life, you have seen strong evidence for something. And if you didn't want to believe it, you can block it out. Uh, one thing, one of the more difficult things in pastoral counseling you deal with is, of course, people who, uh, their spouse is being unfaithful. 
uh, or with our Umbridge Beauty Ministry, uh, somebody whose spouse is being abusive or on the road to being abusive soon. Uh, you send them as you've got somebody, I had somebody in premarital counseling who uh, it was obvious that their spouse was going to be abusive as soon as they had that ring. And uh, so I tried to warn them, tried to warn the wife. She wouldn't see it. Did it, did it matter? They, they, all the evidence? No. Because when you don't want to see something, you don't see it. There's some more mundane examples. How many times do you know somebody, or maybe you, have gone and bought something on credit? And there was plenty of evidence that you had no way of affording that, but you said, ah, oh, it'll be fine. You used to go and you say, you, know, <laughs> you go and buy some clothes or whatever. There's plenty of evidence in your closet. You've already got plenty of clothes, but you don't want to see that, so you block that evidence out. The people who were looking for signs and wonders, the problem was not what they had seen. The problem was their heart. The seeing is not believing. The seeing does not cause faith. In fact, with seeing, it no longer becomes, it's no longer faith at all. So when people say, if God would just do these kind of miracles today, then we could believe. Well, the people then didn't believe. I heard, probably the greatest illustration of this point I heard was from uh, Adrian Rogers. He said, imagine that he uh, told his son that he had put $500 into his son's bank account. He said, son, that's a gift for you. I want you to spend that on whatever you want. And uh, his son said, Dad, thank you so much, but can I see the deposit slip? So, don't you believe me? said, yeah, I believe you. I just need to see something. I just need some proof. And what would that say to you if somebody couldn't take his father at his word? So when God, we come to God, and God says, I've done this for you. I've given you this. I've done this. They say, okay, God, um, thank you so much. How about a sign? How about that deposit slip? Now, when I put it in terms of a father and a child, how would you feel if one of your children came to you and said, well, I believe you do, you've done that when I see it? You go to your 17-year-old and you say, okay, I paid your car insurance. Okay, well, where's the receipt? You don't believe that I paid it? Well, I, I do. I, I just want to see the receipt. Just in case I get pulled over, I want to know for sure that they're not going to come back and say I don't have insurance. If you can't trust the word of somebody that loves you and cares for you, then the problem is your heart. The problem is not the proof. You can imagine then somebody brings you the receipt. You say, well, um, how can I? This is not on tamper-evident paper. I can't tell if you fake this. No proof is enough. The, maybe you've heard the old proverb. Dave Ramsey says it a lot. He convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So he says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And if you believe on the basis of something like that, it's a fragile, fragile faith. People whose faith exists or whose apparent faith exists based on experiences, that faith lasts only as long as the memory of that experience is strong. You know, there are some things that have happened to you where for a moment, things seemed so clear, you were so passionate about it, you said, it's so obvious, this is the right thing to do. And then you go a little longer, 
and that memory starts to fade, and other things start to happen. And whatever is closest to you seems the most compelling. There's a reason that we need what Augustine of Hippo called faith-seeking understanding. If your faith is the foundation, then you say, I'm going to build on that with experiences and learning and different things. Then everything you have will be on a solid foundation, the solid rock of Christ. But if you put your experiences first and then try to put faith on top of that, your house is upside down. It'll never be stable. It'll never stand. I'm not saying that faith is going against what you already know. Faith is taking the next step in the direction you're going. So you go and you read about the, the Bible, and you start looking at G, what Jesus said, and you're, you know, the Holy Spirit starts to convict you, and your mind starts to work, and you say, okay, Jesus apparently was very influential. Uh, he reshaped the entire world with his humility. That takes me in a certain direction. Jesus was so humble, he laid down his life. That takes me in a certain direction. Every prophecy in the Bible is fulfilled with exact accuracy. That takes me a little further in this direction. The Bible, there are more copies of any book of the Bible from the ancient world than any other document of ancient literature. That takes me a little farther in this direction. Jesus, after he died, his disciples all denied him. But then... Three days later, they all went around convinced that they had seen him alive after his death. They were all so convinced that 11 of the 12 just killed themselves. 11 of the 12 went around saying that for the rest of their lives. 10 of them were killed because they refused to recant, and John was exiled for refusing to recant. They all essentially gave up their lives that they had seen. That takes you a little farther. That's important. Let me do that one more time. Islam is based on what Muhammad said that he saw. So for the Quran to be wrong, Muhammad had to be wrong. One person had to be wrong. I can believe one person was wrong because I know people. The Book of Mormon is based on Joseph Smith's vision. Nobody else saw. So for the Book of Mormon to be wrong, one person had to be wrong. Uh, Modern Buddhism is based on what the Buddha said that he saw in his visions. For Buddhism to be wrong, one person had to be wrong. For Christianity, the central fact of Christianity, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins, your faith is in vain. For Christianity to be wrong, the 11 had to, and not just the 11, the Bible said he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at one time, but let's just use the 11. 11 people all had to be willing to give up everything they had, their friends, their jobs, their livelihoods, their life, over not what they believed, Lots of people will die for what they believe in are wrong. But what they saw with their own eyes. If Jesus rose from the dead, then the rest of Christianity is true. If if God vindicated Jesus by raising him up from the dead, then everything else that happened, you should believe anything else Jesus said. Some people say to you, um, well, do you really believe there was an Adam and an Eve? And my response is, well, Jesus said, in the beginning, male and female created he them. Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus believed the Old Testament. So I'm going to guess he's the authority on that, and I'm going to believe the Old Testament. So for Christianity to be wrong, it's not one person's wrong about what they believed. It's not one person's wrong about what they thought they saw. It's about 11 people 
so sure that they had seen Jesus alive that they died. And then 500 others also. And of course, at the time, these things were all uh, still alive. Uh, these people were all still alive and were verified. You know, the, none of Jesus' enemies said, oh, he's not risen because here's the body. Oh, well, the body must have been stolen or something. Every historical source agrees there was no body. And there were so many Christians that just a few decades later, when Nero burned Rome down, he thought Christians were a good scapegoat. You know, uh, that's an important argument, too. Sometimes you'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, well, nobody thought Jesus was God until way later, when all the people that had been there and known him were dead. Well, that's false for about 100 different reasons. Uh, but maybe the easiest example to prove to somebody who doesn't know much about history is that Nero, within one lifetime, of the uh, life of Jesus, thought that the best people to blame for the burning of Rome were Christians because there were enough Christians that worshipped Jesus in Rome that they were a good scapegoat. Now, all this evidence brings you in one direction. Now, finally, that evidence will never take you to the leap of faith to say, I lay down my sins and I trust Jesus. You've got to do that on faith. The Holy Spirit's got to convict you and pull you. But faith is not going this way when the evidence is pulling you this way. Faith is saying, God, you've shown me this far, and if I can trust you with all these things, then I take you at your word now. See, if you've got a parent who is a consistently absent, habitual liar, who says, you know, you've got two divorced parents. One says, I'm going to pick you up, and they never come. Uh, One says, you know, I'm going to bring you something, and they never do. They forget your birthday, whatever. And they say, I put some money in your account. You might understand why somebody would ask for the deposit slip. But somebody that has been faithful every step of the way, you have no reason to doubt them. Jesus has been faithful every step of the way. So when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he says, whosoever cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. When he says things like that, you have no reason to doubt him. That's where faith has taken you. You don't need a miracle. You don't need a sign. You don't need that kind of evidence if you can trust. So that's what Jesus says to him. He says, accept ye, uh, and you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It is plural. It's uh, accept y'all, see signs and wonders. Y'all will not believe. Verse 49, the nobleman saith unto him, sir, come down ere my child die. The nobleman says, hurry, sir, you've got to come before my child dies. There's a transition there. And we can't see it 100% confidently from the text, but Jesus knows his heart. Jesus tests him. Remember the same thing he did to Mary. We were already kind of clued in. We needed to look at these two side by side. Mary said, they're out of wine. And Jesus said, what has that to do with me? My my hour has not come. And then Mary said, whatever he says, do it. Jesus pushed back a little bit, and Mary came to him in faith. The nobleman here comes with urgency and fear, and Jesus pushes back a little bit and says, do you need a sign to believe? And he chooses to believe now instead. He says, come, I believe you are the one that can save my child. Then Jesus says unto him, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. See, he didn't believe the sign. He didn't believe anything else. He believed the word. 
If you want to have a relationship with God, there is only one way to do it, and it is by believing the word. You see, so what does he do? The nobleman comes, he says, you've got to come, Jesus. My son is dying. Jesus says, unless you see signs and miracles, will you not believe? You know, you can also translate it as a question. It's the same idea. Challenges him a little bit on it. He says, no, you have to come now before he dies. You are the one. Jesus says, go on home. He's healed. The man goes. Because he believes. Now, if the man had stayed and bought some medicine in in, uh, Cana and had tried to get another healer to come with him and had looked for a doctor and then gone back with his little entourage, he would not have believed. That wouldn't have been faith. He wouldn't have trusted Jesus at his word. So how many Christians, Jesus says, uh, well, Jesus says that in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten son, then whosoever believeth in him. Jesus said to you, if you believe, you'll be saved. And then how many people go and say, okay, thank you so much, Jesus. I believe that. Now let me go and get some good works. Let me go and get some religious activity. Let me go and get. You don't believe the word unless you are wholeheartedly in it, unless you say, that is my only hope. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. So Jesus then comes, and he, he says, your son is alive. Literally in the Hebrew, in the Greek, it's in the present tense. He said, your son is alive now. I don't know, uh, we got a, a glitch with the text up here where it's, uh, I don't know what translation that is, but the King James is way more accurate. Go thy way, thy son liveth. He lives now. Literally, you could even translate it, your son is living. That means he's not starting to get a little bit better. That means he's not, uh, you know, there's not hope now. It means from that moment that Jesus declared it, he was alive. Now, when you become a Christian, you come to Jesus, you believe that he gave his only begotten son. You don't start the process of becoming spiritually alive. You have eternal life right then. Right then. That's the power if you believe the word. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. His servants come and try to find him and uh, follow him up the road and want to warn him, don't bother finding Jesus anymore. Your son's fine. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. I mean, Hebrews started their day at uh, sunrise, so it's one o'clock. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, he was he, he just better. The fever left him. He was healed. Now, that, this gives you a little bit of insight. It was about a day's walk from uh, Cana to Capernaum. The father left and started on the way home, but he didn't run because he knew his son was going to be fine. What marvelous faith. So next, in the next day, he comes. He doesn't run through the night. If he'd gone all night long, he would have made it to Canaan by then. To Capernaum by then. So they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. His whole family, when they heard this, placed their faith in Jesus. Their faith moved from a faith in the word, which is better than a faith in the sign, to a faith in the person. You can't be saved. You can believe every word of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and not be saved. Because it's not about 
information. God did not give us the Bible to make us smarter sinners, but to be more like the Savior. See, it's about trusting him. But when you trust the word, it will lead you to trust the person, and that's what happened for this entire family. It's a little bit of confession time. Um, One of my favorite stories, and many of you have heard it before, but not all of you, uh, maybe half, so let me tell you something that happened that really God just sort of whacked me over the head. Um, Several years ago, when I was attending church in Alvin, there was a lady who had a stroke. Well, her, her husband had a heart attack. She was in the hospital with him in the ICU where he had had his heart attack. While she was with him, she had a stroke. But she did not tell anybody because she was afraid that if she started talking about not feeling well, they were going to take her away from her husband. A few hours later, she had another stroke and passed out on the floor. They took her away, put her in, a, in the critical care, and when her husband got better a few days later, they said she has not regained consciousness. She's not going to make it. Her brain is completely shut down. She's on a ventilator, and you just need to make the decision about whether or not you want to pull the plug. Well, he made that heart-wrenching choice that he said there's... You know, she wouldn't want to live like this on this ventilator, so he turned the ventilator off. And they said it would just be a few hours. Well, I was at church that night when I heard they were, uh, had just done that, turned the ventilator off. And uh, I, I went up to the hospital because I, I just felt like I need to go up there and pray. Uh, and that, that's strange, you know, because God can hear your prayers from anywhere. We see that right here. But God was showing me something. I just felt this compulsion to go there. So I get up to the hospital, and the hospital is locked already. It's a Clear Lake Hospital. And the front doors are locked. So I stood next to the front door, and I prayed. And I said, God, I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, just please heal her. And then I look up, and somebody's coming out. And the uh, automatic doors are open, so I walk in. And I go up to the ICU waiting room. I don't go into the ICU. And I sit there. And I just read my Bible and pray for a couple hours. At this point, it's probably from 9 o'clock until about 11 o'clock. I just sit up there and pray and read my Bible and just pray. I went home and came back the next day to the hospital. And I came up expecting that she had died. That's terrible, isn't it? I was praying for her to be healed. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking the odds are against it. And so I will tell you, as surely as I'm standing here, when I went into the food court and I saw her husband smiling and eating, I was shocked because he had a nervous breakdown. What is going on? And I went and I sat down with him at the table he was at, and I started talking to him. And I said, okay, so Brother James, how's it going? And he said, you won't believe it. She woke up last night. They said she's going to be okay. And I said, well, I was up here praying for that. And he said, "Uh, when were you up here? And I told him about 9 to 11. He said, the doctor said at 10 o'clock she woke up last night. (laughs) You're talking about feeling guilty. I'm there waiting to plan in the funeral, and God is answering the prayer that I prayed. Now, why did I go up there? Why did God lay it on my heart to go up there? 
It was not because God cannot answer prayers long distance. It's not because I'm some kind of a miraculous Benny Hinn and God needed me to whack her on the head. It's because God knew, I believe, God knew that if I was there, I would know what time I was up there and he could straighten me out on this whole faith thing. Because if I had just prayed and then gone to bed, then I would have said, wow, that sure is good that God answered that prayer and that she's better. But I never would have had to face the fact that I prayed without believing. So that's uh, my own uh, nobleman from Capernaum story. And I'll tell you, that was probably six or seven years ago now, but that still racks my mind. Whenever I start to pray not in faith, uh, that just that story comes back up to my mind. And that's a... That's God's little um, whip to knock me back into shape. And God does that with us, doesn't he? But our faith has to be where it starts. Our obedience has to be where it starts. You know, I believed that God had the power to heal her. You know, but I didn't believe that he was going to. But you remember what the man said to Mark whose son was possessed with a demon. Jesus, he said, if you can, heal him. And Jesus said, all things are possible if you believe. Remember what the father said. It says, and straightway, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe, help thou my unbelief. (laughs) If your foundation is works, if your foundation is what you see, you're in big trouble. But if your foundation is to say, Lord, I've got this little bit of faith, won't you transform it? If your, thing is to, if your faith is to say, Lord, I take you at your word, now won't you help me trust your heart? If your faith is, yes, Lord, I know what you've said, grow that in me, then God will do the same things for you that he did for this man. He will do a work in you. He will show you things and transform you from the inside out. But he will not do it if that's your foundation. And we've talked about this maybe so many times. But if you have a child and they throw a tantrum in the store, you know what we do with the kids when we pick the kids up in the van and take them home? We've got a rule. Colleen and I will talk about if they're good, you know, pick them up some ices at the Valero on the way down in the van. But if one of them says, can we get an icy tonight? No ices. Why is that? Because we're not going to teach them to act like that. God looks at you, and maybe, in the grand scheme of things, God's uh, plan, and God knows what you're going to do, so I'm using that kind of loosely, but otherwise, God would have done something for you. But you come and ask in the wrong way with the wrong motivation, and God changes his plan, because he says, I'm not going to teach you to act like that. So my question for you this morning is, are you among those of whom Jesus can say, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? Or are you somebody who can say this morning, Lord, I trust you at your word. I believe you at your word. If you believe him at his word, but you haven't trusted in his person, if right now if you died, you don't know, you say, well, I hope I'd go to heaven. I want you this morning to, on the authority of his word that says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to come and trust his person. Maybe you are a Christian, but you have wandered far in faith. You're looking for signs and evidence, and you're saying, I just don't feel. You know, Lord, make me feel warm and fuzzy in my heart. You need to feel warm and fuzzy in your heart. Go eat some Mexican food. But if you want to know 
You say, I don't need to see the deposit slip. I trust you at your word. I trust the one who is humble, laid down his life for me. I humble myself. I don't rely on myself or what I feel or what I think or what I know. I trust what you say. So this morning, where is your faith? As we stand, as our musicians come, we're going to have a hymn of invitation and get you, give you a chance this morning to get right with God.